want to say what a pleasure and privilege it is to be here with you and to spend this day in the study of God's sacred holy word. There's nothing more wonderful than to study the book that shows us the pathway to salvation. There's nothing more important. Nothing will transcend what we study here today because we are going to be dealing with the precious truths by which God, through his Son, Jesus Christ, provides for the salvation of every human being. Now, firstly, I want to bring greetings to you uh, from Heartland. As you know, we have quite a A group of young people from all the world there. And this year has been such a wonderful year. We're well past the halfway mark of the year. And I know of no year we've had where it started off with such a dedication and commitment of the young people to the Lord. I, I sense that the closer we come to the end of time, the more committed God's faithful people are and the more uncommitted are those who are unfaithful. But that's how we'd expect it to be. The servant of the Lord in talking about the wheat and the tares in God's church said that at first it was almost impossible to tell the difference. You know, when they're small, the tares, as they're growing up, look just like wheat. But she says there on page 74 of Christ's object lessons that once the tares and the wheat were ready for the harvest, the tares bore almost no resemblance to the wheat. It's interesting, isn't it? And I believe that one of the great signs that we are coming to the end of this world's history is that the divergence between God's faithful people and those who are pretending to be part of God's people but are not truly faithful to him becomes so much more apparent. And, uh, of course, we know that the Bible teaches there'll be a shaking and a sifting and all that can be shaken will be shaken. You know, it's not a matter of shaking most of the chaff out. In the end, all the chaff will be shaken out. The chaff represents whom? In the, in the symbology of the Bible, well, who do the chaff represent? Hmm? Yes, those who have been part of the church, they're in the group of the church, but what happens? They're not converted. These are the unconverted people. Uh, as far as spiritual things go, they're very lightweight, and that's why they can be sifted out. But what happens to the grain? Does any of the grain fall to the ground? Not according to the prophet Amos. Not one grain falls to the ground in this shaking. In other words, God's faithful people will be part of God's end time church. Now, I have planned this series to speak on the most basic direct issues of salvation. I pray that all of you are planning to be here the whole of the day because I want to step by step walk us through the principles of salvation as found in Holy Scripture. Indeed, if we don't do that, can you imagine being here and letting people go away without being clear in their understanding of how God has provided for their salvation? It's an amazing thing that there seems to be such confusion on how to be saved. You know, we can talk about the scandals in Christendom today. 
and their terrible scandals. We can talk about the terrible state of our world and the uncertainty there, and that's certainly not inappropriate, but it's meaningless unless we are in the pathway of salvation. Would you agree with me? After all, above everything else, we want to be saved in the kingdom of heaven. And you know, Satan has put all sorts of spurious examples of how to be saved. Amazing. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, Paul says, I'm nothing. Though I understand all prophecies, all mysteries. You see, there are basic issues of salvation that transcend any other study that we have in the Christian fellowship. Every other study. This is not to say those studies are not important, but if we're not already in a deep and deepening relationship with Jesus day by day, that we're not in a covenant relationship for salvation with him, then there is hardly any purpose in this. I am amazed at the number of people that seem uncertain. You know, you ask questions. uh, Is it possible to have victory over sin? Ever tried to ask a group of, of people whether it's possible? Some say yes. Some say no, and a large number today are not sure. They're in no man's land. You get the the kind of answers I've got, well, I think so, but I don't know anyone that has. That's a pretty devastating statement, isn't it? Which tells me that person hasn't got victory in the power of Jesus Christ. Because you'd at least know yourself, wouldn't you, or would you? Anyway, we're going to be looking at some of those themes today. Let us just uh, go back and look a little, uh, in this sermon this morning, a little background of history on this. Obviously, the disciples knew the plan of salvation. They understood it, and in under inspiration, much of that was shared with us in the New Testament canon of Scripture. So we're going to be, of course, relying on that for our answers But very quickly, the inroads of paganism and the shading of truth became apparent in the Christian church. And what we call today pluralism, that is, various ideas start to arise. Indeed, we do not have to go beyond the apostolic time to find that situation. And the false doctrines coming into the Christian church In fact, much of the New Testament would not have been written. You look at Galatians, for example. Let's go over to Galatians chapter 1. And here we we see this principle outlined here. It starts off very nicely. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so he has given a very nice commencement here to this this, uh, epistle. He's given a brief outline of the plan of salvation. But as soon as he's done that, then he gets the real reason why he's writing this letter. Terrible apostasy has come into the churches of Galatia. Now, how many of you know what kind of people the Galatians were? Who were the Galatians? What race were they? What kind of a race were the Galatians? Anyone know? Don't be afraid to... No, they were not Greek. They were not Greek. The Galatians were certainly not Greeks. Roger. They were Celts, that's right. These were Celtic people. 
quite related to the Celts of France and the Celts of Great Britain and the Celts in Russia at that time. There were, there were four major communities of Celts and other smaller communities, one over in what we now call Russia. This Celtic community in what was northern Turkey and the Celts kind of in southern France and perhaps a little tip of, of Spain and of course the Celts of Scotland, Ireland, Wales, all over this place at that time before the invasions of the Angles and the Jutes and the Saxons and so on and the later French uh, or uh, Normans. This was Celtic country. Still is in parts. So, and they were fierce people, these Celts. Do you realize that Alexander the Great took his army around the Celts and didn't engage them in battle? Not that he didn't think he could defeat them, but he knew how fierce and warlike the Celts were. He decided it wasn't worth the carnage to take on the Celts in battle. That was, of course, well before this epistle. But when they accepted the Lord, some of them became great missionaries. In fact, as you know, some of the greatest missionaries that ever existed in Christian times were Celts, where they came from Iona, where that great uh, Celtic community commenced and Lindisfarne and places like that or over here in Wales, northern Wales in Bangor in Duneuth, under Duneuth and other leaders and people like Columbanus that went from the Celtic school there in Bangor across to France and Germany and Austria and Italy all these great Celtic leaders, they were powerful Warriors for God once they were converted. But before they were converted, they were pretty fierce and warlike. And probably many of us here have got Celtic blood surging in our veins. I know I've got some of it from my forebears. But um, when they took on the message of truth, they were a powerful people. And yet they were deceived so early. Look at it here. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. Why did he say that it's not another gospel? Because there's only one gospel. That's what we're going to look at today. There's only one gospel, which is not another. But they, uh, but though, I'm sorry, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, as so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which we, ye have received, let him be accursed. Listen, that's a strong statement, isn't it? Even if an angel were to come and preach a different gospel, you reject it. Because obviously it's not an angel of light, it's an angel of darkness. So here is the gospel was being perverted. Who was responsible for the perversion? Oh, it said men came in amongst them, but who ultimately was responsible? Satan is seeking to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. I could take you over there to Corinthians and look there, but I want to take you to Jude. Let's look what happened and why Jude wrote his epistle. If you come over to Jude verse 4, you'll get an understanding there of how the gospel was perverted. Notice it. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it was happening in apostolic times. You can understand it. Satan was trying to destroy the embryonic Christian church. That was his goal. That was his objective. And of course some were deceived. And Paul couldn't understand it. He said, I marveled. Who we've taught you the truth. We've given you the words of life. And... 
the first people that come along with a different gospel, you fall for it. Now we look down through the years of the history of the Christian church and we find a continuation of that. We find that there are other examples of the flooding in of false theories. But remember, there is only one truth. Last night up at Norwich, we spoke on the banner of truth. Unfortunately, most of you were not able to be there. But there's only one truth. If it's truth, you can't say, well, there are three truths about this situation. It's like saying there's two answers to um, two plus two. You'd laugh at me, wouldn't you? There's, there's only one truth about two plus two, and that's four. If you say three, you've got an error. If you say five, you've got an error. There's one truth, and it cannot be changed. There's no amount of argument, philosophizing, theologian, um, theories, or whatever to bring you back to the one truth. That's why I often say that when you take distilled water and you put a couple of drops of strychnine in it, you no longer have pure water. You can say, well, overwhelmingly it's pure water. Or there is much pure water there. That's irrelevant. You've got poison. You can say, well, we've diluted the poison, but it's still poison. And of course Satan will dilute it. So as we look here this Sabbath, holy Sabbath day, at this plan of salvation, we want to find God's true plan. We want to see what God's word actually says. We can't move to the left. We can't move to the right. We can't say, well, you know, you believe a little differently from me. But both of us, I'm sure, are on the right pathway. There is one way. And the Bible says it's a narrow way. And few there be that find it. I want to be amongst that few. What about you? Don't you want to be amongst the few to find the way? Satan has a mistake. He has an error. He has an apostasy. He has a perversion to try to deceive every single Christian. Now, Satan was trying so hard at the early Christian time and throughout the Christian era to derail the people of God. Do you think he stopped now? Or do you think he's still bringing error? Do you think he's still bringing diversions to the people of God? He's wanting to win back to his nefarious, wicked kingdom all that he can. Any of us that are Christians today, in the true sense of that word, we are Christians because God has called us out of the darkness of this world, out of the deep darkness of Satan, into the marvelous light of his truth. That is the reason that we are Christians today. Well, how is a man saved? I was uh, speaking, or being interviewed up in New Jersey few years ago by Paul Hunsberger and the question uh, he was speaking on his program meet your minister now you probably don't all know Paul Hunsberger but he's very well known in the United States as a radio interviewer a Christian radio interviewer he is a Baptist by Religion. He's been president of the Gideon Bible Society of North America. He's well known, writes for many of the major national religious papers of America. And he'd invited two of us up to come and be interviewed on his program, Off the Cuff. At least that's what he invited us to come. He has an interesting approach. You go up there and he, ha he has a restaurant that provides the meals for he and his guests. Whenever he's interviewing, free of charge to him. Of course, it's good advertising for them. And uh, fortunately, they had a good salad bar. So that was good for us. And, uh, and so over lunch, he, he, we just, you talk informally. He gets to know you a little, you see. 
Let's know a little about your background, a little who you are, what you stand for and so on. And actually what he was, uh, he called us up there was to interview us on segments of, of um, his daily program, five days a week, that goes over uh, syndicated radio called Off the Cuff. Now, he had been running that program for over 30 years when I was interviewed, and he'd never interviewed the same person twice. That's a lot of people to interview, five days a week. And, of course, they are pre-recorded. Uh, they don't go live onto the, the radio band, so sometimes he'll do two or three together for obvious reasons to keep ahead of what he has to do. But nevertheless, uh, when he interviewed, uh, or when we're reading together, just towards the end of it, he said, now, you're a Seventh-day Adventist minister, aren't you? And I said, yes. He said, well, I, I don't think I'll interview you on Off the Cuff. I'll interview you on my other program, which comes on once a week over the airways on a Sunday, called Meet Your Minister. And he interviews ministers of various faiths. Um, for this Sunday program. Well, I didn't go up there ready to talk about uh, something related to being a minister. So I had to get my mind into gear and ask the Lord for help. But partway through, it was going very nicely when suddenly Paul Hunsberger, without any lead-up, said, Dr. Standish, how is a man saved? What answer would you give? I've asked that question many times to people since. I find most people start spluttering. A few have done well. I hope everyone here would do well. But I tell you, if Seventh-day Adventists can't give the answer to that question, how is a man saved? We're in serious problems. Now, of course, that is not a one-word answer. Not a one-sentence answer. But I started with one sentence. We are saved by God through the death and ministry of his son, Jesus Christ. Do you agree with that? Now, that's a short answer, but it's a fundamental basis, isn't it? We're saved by God through the death, or you might want to say the life, death, and ministry of Jesus Christ. You might put a little different wordy words on it, but... Basically, well, of course, he wasn't satisfied that he'd got to the bottom line of this Seventh-day Adventist minister. We were sitting across the table by that time. He had the mic in the middle and he was there and I was here. So about two feet away, I was looking into his eyes and he was looking into my eyes. And I was thinking, I know what he's thinking as a Baptist. He's expecting a legalistic answer. Is that the way we're saved? By doing good works? Are we? Come on, Seventh-day Adventists. Does that save us? Will you be saved without them? Well, we've got to get somewhere within the understanding of that. And So um, he pushed a little further. So I decided to quote Ephesians chapter 2. I thought we'd better get down to something that he didn't expect me to quote. But after all, this is a word of Scripture. Seventh-day Adventists believe the Bible. We don't believe part of the Bible. We believe the whole of the Bible. And more than that, we believe the whole of the Bible is integrated together. Would you say that was true? Yes. All right. Well, let's look at it. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I could just sense that he was surprised that I used that text. But we believe it, I hope, and we live it. It's the practice of our lives. So he wasn't satisfied that yet he got the answer that he wanted to get or he thought he would get. And so he said, well, where do works come into all that? 
Now we got to the real issue. Now that's where you got the advantage of having the spirit of prophecy. I didn't tell him I was plagiarizing, but I was. I said, well, while good works will not save one soul, not one soul will be saved without good works. That's a statement from 377 of First Selected Messages. He seemed satisfied with that answer. I went on to explain it just a little further. And I said, while we are not saved by good works, the preposition is very important. We are saved with good works. Listen, once the power of Jesus has come into your life, dear brethren and sisters, you will be a new creation. All things will have passed away. Your motives have been transformed. Your desires have been redirected. Your impulses are not what they were before. There is a total change in the human direction. And if you do not have that human direction, dear brethren and sisters, that leads to heaven, you are yet in your sins. You're yet carnal, as Paul said to the Corinthian believers there in the third chapter of 1 Corinthians. You can call yourself a Christian. You can call yourself a Seventh-day Adventist. But dear brethren and sisters, if the spirit of Jesus is not the motivating force in your life, then you're just as you were before. You're claiming to be something. You might know a little more about the plan of salvation, but you are not a practicing Christian. And I tell you, brethren and sisters, that is what we have to find here. You see, Paul himself, I've just read verses 8 and 9, but in reality, this it's wrong to just read verse 8 and 9. We should read verses 8 through 10 to get the full purpose of what Paul is saying here in the second chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians. You notice it here. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Listen, don't let anyone just preach to you on verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2. That only gives a part answer to this. Paul is saying, we're not saved by works. We're saved through the merits of Jesus Christ. We're saved through his death. Without Christ, all the good works in the world would not save us. Because once we sin, which... All of us have done according to Paul, and that's true. You can confess to that as I can. Then we're worthy of eternal destruction. It's like the murderer saying, well, I only murdered one person. You don't have to murder a hundred people to be a murderer. You don't have to rape one hundred women to be a rapist. You need to realize that one sin will lead you out of the promised land. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. All this whole process would have been unnecessary if it hadn't been for one sin. They didn't go on sinning, sinning, sinning in that. One sin led them out of the Garden of Eden. And it'll take perfect harmony with the principles of God to be led back into the kingdom of heaven. But we're saved by grace. You know, I have a sermon that I preach, which I'm not going to preach here this weekend, called Why Grace is Not Enough. Now, that sounds heretical. But, you know, after I preach that sermon, I've never had a person come up and say that was heretical. I mean, this very text tells you that grace is not enough. We're saved by grace, what? Through faith. You can't be saved by grace without faith, if I understand this text. And that leads us into a wonderful message, which we're not going to take up this weekend. But the works, listen, God, yes, he saves us by grace through faith. But listen, he's foreordained. That means the whole plan is the restoration that we might fulfill the good works. You remember, let your light 
so shine before men that they may do what? See your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's a command. But I want to tell you, once Christ is fully implanted in your life, there's no way you will not be fulfilling good works. They will start to come as naturally as the evil works were in your life before you became a Christian. Once the power and might of Jesus in your life, then there will be an opening up of the principles of salvation to men and women. So we're, we're looking at this. Grace is the foundation because the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. That grace is the basis of the saving acts of Jesus. But then you come to faith. Christ said when he was on earth, when the Son of Man cometh, meaning his second coming, shall he find faith. I find faith one of the greatest lacks amongst even people that appear to be faithful Adventists. I suppose that's an anomaly in term. If there's a lack of faith, how can you be faithful? The very word means you're full of faith. I find faith one of the greatest lacks amongst even people that appear to be faithful Adventists. I suppose that's an anomaly in term. If there's a lack of faith, how can you be faithful? The very word means you're full of faith. But I wonder how many of us have stumbled. I've got to say I've stumbled many times on that. When something goes wrong or things get difficult and we start to complain about it or to murmur to someone about it, do you realize what a lack of faith that is? The scripture says all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. Now think about that. If all things work together for good, why would there be any cause for complaint? Why would be there any cause for murmuring? Why would there be any feeling of depression or de a dejection or anything of that nature. Why would there be? What would be the reason for it if all things work together for good? When we're persecuted, what do the Beatitudes say about persecution? What are we to do in persecution? Rejoice and be exceeding glad. That seems a little opposed to the normal emotions that you'd have when you're persecuted. But the Bible says rejoice and be exceeding glad for so persecuted they, the prophets that were before you. Listen, Paul said he rejoiced in affliction. Hard to know how to do that. But that's what faith does. Brethren and sisters, if we don't have those characteristics, then we're not in the pathway of salvation. John makes it so clear, perhaps we should read it there in the first epistle, chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. You, you notice the wonder of faith. For, verse 4, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Where are you? Where am I in the faith situation? Where can you move forward? What kind of problems do you have? Some of them are 
besetting problems. They seem to keep going. They seem to come back at us like the waves of the ocean. They're not just a one time and then they're over with. Others, of course, are more of that time. But then God has promised that he will not allow us to be tempted or tested above that. We're able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape. Now we've got all these promises. We've got all these assurances. And we get down in the dumps. We get dejected. I found myself last year, about the middle of last year, feeling somewhat dejected. In fact, in a way that I hadn't felt, I don't think, in my whole life for as long a time. A little depressed, a little anxious. I had to take inventory and say, that's not my natural nature. I'm an optimist at heart. But I said, neither is it honoring God. I don't know why I waited as long as I did. I probably went on for two or three months. Not all the time, but recurring. Then I decide to do something. Every morning, I would pray that God would give me victory over depression. I have, as late as this morning, I prayed for that victory. Because it's a sin. It's a lack of faith to get into those kind of depressive states. You know, I haven't had one day of depression since then. What I couldn't do, God could do very easily. Don't just live with these things. Give it to the Lord in the morning. Give him the strength of your life, dear brothers and sisters. Show that you believe what you read and what you recite. Those texts are given, whereunto are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that we might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Listen, let's live and let's uh, practice these principles. When we do, dear brethren and sisters, we will have no problem whatsoever with those issues of faithlessness. Let's work, walk forward that our faith is invincible. Help us to go forward and say, Lord, what you want me to do, I will do no matter what the circumstances are or the consequences are. This is the time for a people to rise up that will not only keep the commandments of God, but do what else? The faith of Jesus. Listen, that's what this people lacks. That's probably the greatest debarring of victory over sin. It's the debarring of going forward in the battlefield of the Lord. The lack of the faith of Jesus. But the saints, here is the patience or the perseverance and endurance of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. You remember Russell and I some years back wrote the book, Keepers of the Faith. Now that, of course, deals with keeping the truth of God, naturally, has to include that. But it means a people that truly live by faith, not only believe that we're justified by faith, but the, the just shall live by faith. Isn't that what the Bible says? They live by it. They don't live by sight. They don't live by circumstances. They don't live by what other people think or what other people say. They live by faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. That's what is needed today. If we're going to be part of that final generation that will take the message of salvation to the world, we're going to be keepers of the faith. We're going to have a faith that's invincible, a faith that will stand in the final test of loyalty to God. And that's not a faith that will come in a moment. Or in a day or two. It's something that we're developing today. Everything that we do must be under the faith of Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, how miserable we are when we go on our own um, reg uh, reconnaissance rather than under the leadership of God. We, um, 
Well, men and women, that no matter what it means, it may even mean death. Be thou faithful, that's what faith in, can include, unto what? Death. And I will give thee a crown of life. Faithful unto death. I tell you this, if we're not faithful in life, we're not faithful unto death. If we can't live by faith, we certainly won't die for our faith. They're the issues. And it'll be a faithful people that will be counted amongst the saints of God. And of course, a faithful people will be a people who work the works of righteousness. They have time to do the work of God. They haven't got time not to do it. So often when we're asked to do something, we haven't got the time. I have found in my own experience, and I presume your experience is really much like mine in this regard, that when I say, well, I don't have time to do it, it means I really don't want to do it. That's a real issue. I don't want to do it. I've had to change over several years now the practice of, have you done something? Oh, I, I haven't had time to do it. That's not true. I haven't made the time to do it. You've got to get a little more accurate on these things. We prioritize, whether overtly or subconsciously, amazing what we find time to do and what we can't find time to do. So there's some of the issues that uh, I think that we're, we're looking at. I want to lay this foundation because from the next four I'm going to be talking about things like justification and sanctification. I'm going to be talking about um, the relationship of these to our salvation. Lots and lots of ideas running around, but so few of them are built on the primary word of God. I tell you, Russell and I wrote that book. I don't know how many of you have it now, The Evangelical Dilemma. The evangelical churches of Christendom are facing a shocking dilemma today. I don't know whether you've talked to any evangelical. I'm talking about active or ministers of evangelical churches. If you think that they're a nice, united group that believe the same truth and they're following in the same pathway, they're in shatters today. And all sorts of problems are confronting them. But the big problem is that they claim to be sola scriptura. The Bible only. When indeed most of what they believe cannot be substantiated or sustained from the Word of God. In fact, I would say every basic principle of salvation has been polluted in evangelical Protestantism. Every one. And now that is banging with great force upon the Seventh-day Adventist Church and many are falling hook, line and sinker because they too are not students of the Word. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a... That's important, isn't it? Thy word. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Is the word of God important? Is the truth important? <coughs> oh, how important it is. Two or three weeks ago, in the city of Atlanta, 74,000 ministers, Protestant ministers met together. You imagine it. I'm not talking about just 74,000 people. I'm talking about 74,000. Well, I'm not certain they're all Protestant. Let's say Christian ministers. 
or claiming to be Christian ministers, met together in Atlantic City in one of the big stadiums, football, I suppose, stadiums there. A friend of mine, a Seventh-day Adventist minister, attended, not because he knew he would agree with it, but because he wanted to learn what they what it was about. He saw this as significant in the final events transpiring in this world's history. Now, I want you to know those 74,000 ministers are now gone back to their congregations all over North America. Probably there are a few from overseas too. What have they been telling their parishioners in their church the last week or two since they've gone back? What has been the, the goal of it? Elder Dick O'Phil, who was the minister that I'm referring to, the Adventist minister from Florida that was there, he said it was so impelling the power that there was there. And so much of it seemed so good and so right. There were wholesale ministers hugging each other, tears rolling down their cheeks, asking forgiveness, maybe on racial issues or on proselytizing from one another's church, all sorts of things. <coughs> but the primary message that was given to those ministers was, we do not need doctrine, we need Christ. Now, brethren and sisters, I want to start off by saying, all the world needs Christ. But I want you to know that Christ is the truth. Outside of truth, there is no true knowledge of Jesus. There cannot be. Outside of Jesus Christ, uh, outside of truth, there cannot be a commitment to Jesus Christ. There cannot be a revelation of Jesus Christ because the great truths of the Bible reveal who Jesus Christ is. I mean, when we understand that Christ is Lord of the Sabbath, doesn't that make a difference to the Sabbath day? I tell you, our recognition of the sovereignty of God, of his lordship in our life, is dependent upon faithful uh, uh, Sabbath keeping where we come into that relationship with him because it shows that we truly accept him as our creator and accept him as our recreator. When we look at the state of the dead and we realize that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, what hope do we have without the resurrection? How can we not understand the death of Jesus and his resurrection if we don't understand it in the light of he did that, that we might be resurrected into his life. How can we understand the fullness of the works of Jesus Christ if we don't understand that he is our sacrifice, our high priest, our mediator, our intercessor, our advocate, and by the way, our judge. That helps us to understand who Jesus is. Otherwise, you've got a, a, barely a sketch of whom Jesus is. The reality of Jesus comes through so greatly there. And these messages coming through that we just want to sweep under the rug, these doctrines. Listen, I'd ask them to read again. Read first. Timothy, read 2 Timothy, read Titus and see how important doctrine and truth and the faith is. If we don't understand the gospel by reading this New Testament, we don't understand anything. There's a tendency just to bring it down. You see, the reason that we say these things is because we want to get into the ecumenical movement. We want to get this kind of a false unity. Now Christ had a different idea of unity. It wasn't to throw aside those doctrines of truth. When Jesus prayed for unity in the 17th chapter 
of John. What did he say was the key to unity? Sanctify them through thy truth. Don't try and bring unity any other way because you won't have a true unity. How can you have unity in diversity? I hear that all the time. Now you can have unity in diversity of nationalities, of races, of colours, of, but not of the doctrine. There is one truth. When Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth, he didn't say through thy truths. The truth is singular. When people tell you they're pluralists or eclecticists, you know they're not Christians in the real sense of the word because there's only one faith. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, the Bible says. And I want us to find clearly that truth as we come to the divine service time. I believe the evangelical dilemma, brethren and sisters, has become our dilemma. When I grew up in this church, everyone seemed to understand the same truth. I'm not talking about things that are not salvation areas. I'm talking about the issues. But today, that isn't true. Many of us have become less fervent in our study of God's word. We're depending more on men and less upon God. So... We're going to look at that. And then in the afternoon, we're going to develop that further and into the evening. Because I want no one to go away here without knowing what God's word says. Then you've got to decide what to do with it. But I don't want anyone to miss God's word. It comes through with great clarity, simplicity, and authenticity. Let us kneel in prayer and ask God to keep this faith holy and inviolate for him. Our Father in heaven, the one who sent his Son that we might have eternal life, oh, how our hearts yearn to reciprocate that love. But even that we cannot do of ourselves and we pray that the love of Jesus will be in our hearts. That his faith will be our faith. That his life will be our life. Lord, we pray that as a congregation here this morning and again later today that your spirit will be with us to open our minds not only to the truth but give us the power to follow in the footsteps of Jesus living what we know and practicing what we believe. We pray that not one person will be missing from the kingdom of heaven when Jesus returns in thy precious name. Amen.